News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever made that joke about how we're all living in the matrix? Of course you have. I've even had long discussions with people about whether or not I would choose to live in the Matrix or not. And sure, the movie contributed to this, but there's also a theory out there known as simulation theory. It's a philosophical hypothesis that essentially poses the question, are you living in a computer simulation? Are we living in that simulation? And because we here enjoy talking about this topic so much amongst ourselves, we decided to try to get the author behind the theory on with us. And Nick Bostrom is with us now. Hi, Nick. Hi, Simi. Now, how did you come up with this theory? I think it was back in when 2001 or two. Um, I had uh, done my PhD in something called uh, anthropics, which is a part of probability theory that turns out to be relevant for this. And I had also for many years been thinking about the implications of future technological developments and what a technologically mature civilization would be able to do. And then from these two different pieces of background, the uh, simulation argument is is really only like one inferential step away. The idea that we are living in a computer simulation. So tell me about your hypothesis. Yeah, so, well, so the idea itself is just an idea that's not particularly original, but um, the simulation argument is is an argument that tries to show that we have reason to take this idea seriously, that it's in fact one of three possibilities. And the simulation argument tries to show that at least one of those three is correct, although it doesn't tell us which one. <coughs> so, so, so one of the idea, one of the possibilities is that we are literally living in a computer simulation created by some advanced civilization. The, the two alternative possibilities is either that there is a, some strong filters such that almost all civilizations at our stage of technological development go extinct before reaching technological maturity. And, and the third alternative is that there is a very strong convergence among all mature civilizations, that they all lose interest in, in, in using their giant computers in order to, to create simulations of people like their historical forebears. Um, so that they are all disinterested in creating simulations. So, so we know that one of these three is correct according to the simulation argument. Okay, let's start with the computer simulation one then. What is the evidence that you see to support that? Well, I think the strongest reason for taking it seriously is this simulation argument that I alluded to. Um, and although it involves some probability theory to really go through it, the basic idea uh, can be grasped quite easily. So if we assume that it's not the case that most civilizations at our current stage go extinct and that some actually therefore make it through, and we assume that it's also the case that at least some of those that make it through are still interested in creating ancestor simulations, then you can show that there would be many, many more simulated versions of human history than original versions of human history. And, and most people with our kinds of experiences would be simulated rather than non-simulated. And so conditional on that being the case, we should think we are probably one of the simulated ones uh, that are typical rather than one of the atypical non-simulated ones, given that from the inside, it wouldn't be possible to tell the difference. 
Okay, wait a minute. And so like in the movie Free Guy, some of us are just characters? No, so the kinds of simulations in question, I call them ancestor simulations, would be simulated worlds and simulated brains, simulated at a fine enough detail that the simulations are conscious. Okay. So it's not like just... The, and the key part here like, is the brain part, because that's what we think underlies the actual experiences we have, right? So if you just simulated a brain as if it were like, you know, a homogenous sphere, there would be no consciousness associated with that. But if you simulated it, say, at the level of individual uh, neurons and synaptic firings, then I think you would replicate the computational process that normally is implemented in our organic brains, but you would now be running that in silica. And I, I, I think, and a lot of people would think that a detailed enough computer emulation of brain activity would itself be conscious and have the same experiences right. as the brain. You, you and so, so, that, so that's the kind of a, a simulation that would be required for this argument. To, okay. You wrote this 20 years ago, though. So let me ask you, in the time that you have written this, do you see more evidence that leans towards one of these hypotheses versus another? The closer uh, our civilization gets to reaching technological maturity, um, the less likely uh, the first of the alternatives are, like the less likely it is that uh, we will almost certainly fail to reach technological maturity, right? Like just the closer we get, the fewer remaining opportunities there is to fail. Um, also, the closer we get while still remaining interested in creating ancestor simulations, the less likely that alternative is. Um, and so if there are three possibilities, and if the probability of two of them is decreasing, that means the probability of the third is correspondingly increasing, Then, right? It has to add up to 100%. Um, but I think these shifts have been relatively small. I, th I think maybe if we ask about people in general, I think maybe the persuasiveness is increased when people see computer graphics year by year becoming more and more realistic. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's easier. Like back then, it was maybe more of a stretch for people to imagine how could you create something that looks so real. That looks but realistic. now look at and it. Now, now, now where we're already at, and you just extrapolate this, you know, it doesn't seem so far fetched. I find that and the then, more we uh, talk about AI, Nick, the more the I hear AI your theory. Might, yes. Yeah, yeah. That that might also make it seem more plausible to people that you could create like digital minds and that you could do the other bits that would be required to actually have the technology to create ancestor simulations. Also with your theory, I mean, it has been 20 years and I feel like it's talked about more now than it ever has been. Does that surprise you? Well, conditional on the argument actually being sound, uh, I guess it is not surprising given that in that case, it seems like a pretty important uh, insight into the structure of the world. Uh, but it, it did actually attract quite a lot of attention even early on uh, at the time when, when the paper first came out. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know whether I should be surprised by that or not. <laughs> I wonder, what does it say about us, do you think, Nick, that we, are, we look for this, that we think, now this might actually be a thing. We might not be real. Well, it seems kind of more strange to me that 
we are, we are when, when we are not interested in like the fundamental nature of reality or like figuring out what 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 the what the heck is going on here where are we what is this place <laughs> what's the purpose like the degree to which most people most of the time uh, can ignore these big picture questions it seems it seems maybe it's a thing that more requires explanation rather than the fact that some people sometimes get curious right so you think it's a good thing we talk about it well, who knows? I hope it is. I, I mean, on the general idea that it is good for us to try to figure out what's going on in the world, what, what, like we were thrust into this world, we, you know, are born into it. And then at some point, maybe in our teenage years or something, we, we start like asking questions about the whole thing. And I guess it's a bit of a matter of faith, ultimately, whether it's actually a good thing for us to be curious and to try to figure things out. But if, if that's the game we're in, then I guess... If, if, if there are important puzzle pieces, it seems good to uh, to find them and uh, I guess. pay attention to them. I wonder though, Nick, even you, do you ever have moments in your daily life where you think, yeah, this is, this is a simulation? Well, I think to a first approximation, even if we are in a simulation, uh, what would make sense to do would be very similar to what would make sense if we are not in a simulation. Um, that you would still have to uh, the best way to predict what will happen next is to look at patterns. You'd still have to, you know, um, get get money in the simulation. You'd have to eat in the simulation. You have to do all like do your exercise in the simulation. Be kind to other people, since quite possibly they would also be implemented in a way that would make them conscious and have moral status. And so, there might be subtle differences in what makes sense to do, given the simulation hypothesis. Um, but, but they are more subtle. So, so at least as, at the first stab, it, it might not make a, an, an immediate and huge practical difference. Well, you, you've given me a lot to think about, Nick, this morning. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> That's fun. That's Dr. Nick Bostrom, professor and director of the Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford. That's quite the job title, is it not? This is Mornings with Simi. All eyes in Ottawa today and really across the country are on the Procedure and House Affairs Committee. Why? Because the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff is set to testify there. So let's get the details now on what's going on. Mackenzie Gray is a senior correspondent for Global News and joins us to talk about this. Good morning, Mackenzie. Hi, Simi. Okay, so what's going on with Katie Telford here? She's going to be appearing at this committee that's been looking into foreign interference. And this is pretty rare. This is only the, this will be the third time she testified at committee. And the Liberals tried their hardest to make sure that she wasn't going to come today. They filibustered for nearly three weeks, uh, nearly around 24 hours worth of actual time at the committee to make sure that they wouldn't come. But they eventually acquiesced. She's here because the opposition parties really wanted to hear from her about what she knows about electoral interference. We heard from the prime minister yesterday saying that, look, uh, yeah, I've spoken with Katie Telford a number of times about this issue. I've talked to Dick Fadden, who used to be the head of CSIS. He was also the national security advisor to Mr. Trudeau. And he said it's very, uh, very often that someone like Ms. Telfer, the chief of staff to the prime minister, would be in the room for senior high-level briefings when the prime minister is getting briefed. But if folks are thinking that they're going to get some more insight into the details of the story that we've done here at Global or our colleagues over at the Globe and Mail have done, uh, I hate to disappoint you, but I don't think that's going to happen today. Uh, we've seen before when the National Security Advisor, the current one, and the current head of CSIS has came to the committee, they basically just said, look, foreign interference is a big deal. We're dealing with it. Sorry, can't tell Anthony more classified information. I would expect that that is the tack that Ms. Telford is going to take today. 
with accompanying talking points that we've heard from the prime minister about how they take things seriously, how they have these reports. Oh, and by the way, how the conservatives did nothing about it when they were in government too. Okay, so what is at stake, do you think, here politically for the Liberals? A lot, because while I've just outlined the case for why I don't think that there's going to be a lot of detailed information about the reports that have come out, there are a lot of political things that could come out. There's no reason that Ms. Telford can't share how many times she was briefed about this, when she was first briefed about it, generalities about topics on, uh, you know, uh, general ideas about learning about uh, different candidates or about money or about all kinds of specific things that have been reported by us here at Global and also by the Globe and Mail. Not getting into the details or verifying that, but saying, did you hear anything about that? Those are reasonable questions that will certainly be asked today. Whether or not Ms. Telford answers them or not uh, is interesting, but it is important to note that we've asked the Prime Minister 10 ways to Sunday about all those kind of things. When were you first briefed? How many times were you briefed? Uh, and he has been able to skate and not answer questions because we don't have the same powers as journalists that parliamentary committees do. They can compel witnesses to answer questions, produce documents, and give other things. Uh, it might not actually be the answer she gives today, but documents that she has to give over to the committee that usually take a couple weeks to give, that might actually be the big news. So this could have some long-term implications for the government on a story that has really been dogging recently. Right. And so on that note, then, what kind of approach do you think the opposition is going to take? Well, the Conservatives in committees like this, and we've seen it before, and Ms. Telford has testified, but it's not just with Ms. Telford. Anytime there's a high-level committee, they are extremely aggressive. They will ask short, snappy, pointed questions, and they will cut people off if they are not answering them. I would expect that the Liberal chair of the committee, Bartosz Chagger, who used to be a former cabinet minister, is also going to be equally as judicious in cutting the Conservatives off if she doesn't like the tone or tenor that they're taking in this, and uh, Liberal MPs on the committee, too, will use the same kind of tactics, asking for point of order to go to the chair saying, I don't like how Mr. Cooper, one of the Conservatives who will be on the committee, is asking these questions. They're not answering. I'm not letting the witness answer, and I want to hear what her answer has to be. Uh, so there'll be a lot of procedural wrangling on that front and a lot of grandstanding, particularly from the Conservatives. But it's not just them who want to miss Telford to testify. The Bloc and the NDP, too, uh, fought quite forcefully throughout this committee to get her to come. Uh, they will, I think, ask maybe a bit more uh, open-ended questions and allow Ms. Telford to answer them. But sometimes that's the best way to actually get an answer from someone. Well, we'll see what happens. Mackenzie, thank you. Thanks a lot, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to have our weekly check-in now on what is happening in the United States. And Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, is with us. And Reggie, I know I say this every week. I feel like, oh, so much to talk about. But boy, oh boy, this week kind of takes the cake, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, yes. And then we'll say the same next week. <laughs> You're so right. Okay, let's start with the big one. Now, this big classified intelligence leak, how big was it? And tell me about this arrest that happened. So, look, this was likely the biggest, if not one of the biggest leaks uh, of classified intelligence uh, in the United States in at least the last decade, if not longer. But this is one of the most embarrassing for the United States. This was a 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard uh, who had just recently been promoted. He was taking pictures, according to people that he would talk to online, of information from within a secured facility on the uh, on the on the grounds. Uh, he would retype some of it. He would put it onto social media sites or uh, to to kind of discuss with his friends to kind of keep them in the loop, according to what they say. Uh, but these were secrets that talked about the war in Ukraine. They talked about United States surveillance on its allies, including South Korea and Israel. It talked about an 
uncorroborated Russian attack on a Canadian gas network. All of this uh, information that should have been kept under a complete lock and seal now out there in the public that the military, the White House, the administration is working to try and stop from circulating. Um, Reggie, how dumb was this guy? Like, did he really think they weren't going to come after him? Well, I mean, look, it's interesting in that the reason that this arrest happened so quickly yesterday is because a few hours before, somebody from the New York Times had gone to the house to talk to the parents at the house, and and there was activity there, and that is what kind of spearheaded the initial um, arrival by FBI agents to conduct the arrest. So, I mean, look, whatever the reason is, we'll find out. The court appearance is happening uh, as we speak. Uh, why the 21-year-old opted to do this, but according to the people within the group that they talked to online, uh, he was a, you know, a, a gun-loving patriot, but also anti-war, and this group of people kind of delving into conspiracy here, thinking, well, if these things are being kept secret, at least this is what they said, if they're being kept secret by the government, then you know that means that there are things that they're not telling the public, and, and that's kind of where it sounds like this was stemming from. Right. And yet that is their very, the nature of their very jobs. Okay. So there's definitely more to come on that one. Absolutely. There is. Uh, We'll get an update as to what happens with the court hearing. We'll also find out if there are potentially other pieces of classified information that may not have been published that are in his hands or were in his hands. Okay. I also, I want to ask you about the Tennessee situation because we touched on that last week as well, because there have been developments. So the two lawmakers who were expelled from the Tennessee state legislature are pretty much on their way back. Back uh, in the court, uh, rather, back into the state legislature uh, after having been removed by the Republican supermajority in the Tennessee State House. Uh, and now they have to kind of fight for their political lives again. They are reinstated. It is temporary because by elections need to be held. One of them is expected to uh, be widely voted back in. Uh, one of the other members who is from the Memphis area, uh, it's going to be a bit of a battle because Republicans have said in the Memphis case, at least, they may withhold funding to parts of uh, the region if they were to, you know, re-vote in, re-elect uh, one of the ousted members. So, I mean, there's a political battle that's being set up here once again. It is, again, raising questions uh, as to whether race is playing a significant hand here. But this is a moment that has caught national attention. The White House, the vice president, was uh, in Tennessee to speak to uh, a group and um, and and we have to wait to see what the what the wider implications are going to be here, how the by-elections are going to play out, but also how this may factor into the wider state elections the next time those come around as well. Oh, boy. OK. And since we're on the, the kind of issues here, let's talk about the public safety issues that have been so prominent as well. You've got two big stories on that front. The one from California. This was the founder of Cash App who was murdered. And there was all this talk about it being public safety issues and what's happened in San Francisco. And now police are saying, nope, it might have been something very different. Might have been something very different. And, you know, of course, Elon Musk had to weigh into this to try and bring this back to what he sees as some crime and safety issues on the street of San Francisco, which were met with immediate rebuke by the police and members of Bob Lee's family. But we're now hearing from police and investigators uh, in San Francisco that this may have been um, not as as random of an attack that had originally been reported, that it was from a person that Bob Lee knew 
from the IT world. They're not going any further into what the potential connection between these two men might be, but it kind of takes away from that statement that tried to turn this into something far more political that we've really seen kind of scattered around the U.S., especially in Democratic cities where, uh, or at least blue cities, where violence on the streets has started to increase over the last couple of months, if not the last couple of years. But the investigation now pointing to something that could be far different than what the mm-hmm. initial uh, uh, bits of, of, of surveillance video had shown, uh, again, is raising more questions than there are answers. Okay, there's that. And then there's this mass bank shooting that happened in Louisville, Kentucky, too. What are we learning about that? Well, look, a mass bank shooting uh, from somebody who had purchased the gun just a few days before this took place. Six people were killed. Uh, it's, it's interesting, too, because Kentucky is uh, a deep red state in the middle of America, but it also has a Democratic governor uh, who lost friends uh, in this shooting. Uh, and there is now a push once again to try and get uh, something done to stem uh, the, the, the flow of, of guns into the state. Look in Tennessee, the Republican governor there actually put some some new restrictions in place following the school shooting uh, in Nashville. Uh, Kentucky now trying to grapple with the fact that, again, you had somebody who the family has now come out to say was suffering from uh, a mental health crisis. How this person was able to get a gun. Is this going to increase that yeah. call for red flag laws? But again, this is just another of another of another shooting. And oftentimes the conversations kind of get lost along with the solutions. Oh, boy. OK. And of course, we can't leave you this week, Reggie, without asking you what the latest is on former President Donald Trump. Uh, Well, he was in court uh, once again, not linked to a federal case. He was in court in New York City yesterday to be deposed by New York Attorney General Letitia James. This all goes back to issues surrounding uh, Trump's business practices and fraud and allegations about um, misrepresenting the value of real estate properties. This is something that the former president during his last deposition pleaded the Fifth Amendment to more than 400 times. He actually answered a few more questions this time around, but it is just one of obviously as we know several cases the former president is facing. The biggest and most pressing one still remains the issue in Mar-a-Lago with the classified documents. Uh, We know that members of his former intelligence community were uh, testifying to a grand jury yesterday. We don't know what was said. And just last night on one of the networks, uh, the former attorney general Bill Barr was saying that this could be the case that ultimately leads to a federal indictment of Donald Trump. Well, guess what? I think we'll be talking about that next week when we get this update. So, Reggie, thank you very much for that. Thank you. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent with our weekly check-in with everything that's happening in the United States. And honestly, we just kind of scratch the surface when we're doing that, right? There's always a lot to talk about. This is Mornings with Simi. The number of racialized immigrant women in Canada has increased over recent decades. Well, Canada is coming off a record-breaking year for the number of newcomers to this country. And there is no sign of immigration slowing down. Look, folks, uh, it's simple to me. Canada needs more people. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population if we're going to meet the needs of the labor force. But their employment numbers lag. Even when women immigrants are employed, they're more likely to be underemployed, part-time, and poorly compensated. In addition, last year, the IRCC Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada reported that racialized newcomer women are overrepresented in low-wage sectors, such as accommodation, food services, and hospitality. And there 
comes the role of the Women's Insight program. Women Insight program, it's a program to empower women and have them initiate or establish your, their community project. Um, they will work in a, in a project they're going to decide um, later on through the program and work on it for like one year and then they will move forward from there. So the program is um, to help them understand the UNHCR 2030 agenda and the sustainable developmental goals and make them more uh, connected to the society and have a power in decisions made in the, in the society as well. This is Shazal Shamsi, the program facilitator and an immigrant woman herself. During one of the cohorts previously, um, I was not the facilitator, someone else was. And so one of the community projects they did is they did a catering. So they started to serve in, uh, um, in events and people started to hire them and made orders from their service. Um, this is one of the stories I really like because I, I myself um, experienced the food they, they make and the, uh, the design also, the way they prepare the food is also so appealing and so nice. The program is a collaboration between the Muslim Food Bank and Mothers Matters. While I was talking with Shaza, I had a chance to meet the participants who came from different parts of the world, including Syria, Ukraine, Turkey, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Yemen, India, Lebanon, and Sudan. So I asked them why they were attending the program. I started with Khawla from Yemen. Actually, at the beginning, when I came to this program, I was so excited to do something new. I couldn't exactly know what's the outcome from this program. But then lately I understand we're going to get more skills. Uh, I like the part that we educate ourselves more in the social justice, which is my background, uh, doesn't have that much in this area. Um, and uh, I want to expand my network here in Canada. Then Sarah from Afghanistan. For me, Specifically for me, this community and being in this group is really, really valuable because I feel alone myself because it's a few months and I don't have much more. Uh, I, I mean, I'm I'm not some I'm not having something to do, and also having a network like this and connecting with other girls and women is really great now for me. I think. And Najwa from Lebanon. I want to have more confidence, uh, learn more skills, and encourage myself to be one of the the community of because I'm new here and I have no families, uh, no friends, still new, and I want to also planning to make my own uh, project. My dream is to have a daycare. How many countries in the world had a woman as a president or head of state in 2017? The aim of the program is to make women feel empowered and to improve their skills and also to help them find job later on because lots of the skills they're going to learn here or improve are transferable skills. All of this... um, going towards supporting women to feel empowered and have decisions in their life. Shaza, what is the best part of your job? Connecting with women definitely is one of the best 
thing in the um, in this job and learning about their experiences and the struggles they face um, and despite every struggle and every challenge they have they you hear that they were able to stand up again and uh, to to be proud again um, Ah, yeah, and you see the commitments they have, and they still have the uh, power or the courage to come to the event, and they are interested always in learning. So you always see that passion, which also drives you more and, and gives you more energy in order to continue on your life personally. So this is really good in our seeing that happening in the society and with women. For the 2023 Future of Work series, I'm Leila Khader. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this week marks the 43rd anniversary of the beginning of Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope. Now, that's an event that is really heart and soul of Canada's history, isn't it? And if you're young, then maybe you don't realize how revolutionary it all was. That, you know, we could actually talk about fighting cancer then so openly. We could start to raise money for it. These things didn't happen before the Marathon of Hope. And that's why Terry Fox's legacy lives on in such a big way. The Terry Fox Foundation has raised almost a billion dollars for cancer research, just a huge number. And this year, though, I think they might just outdo themselves thanks to a t-shirt. And we're going to learn all about it now with the help of Kirsten Fox, Terry Fox's niece, works hard to promote that foundation. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Simi. Well, I want to hear about this. Tell me about the Dear Terry t-shirt. What is this? Sure. Yeah, we're we're really excited about um, our campaign this year for the 43rd uh, annual Terry Fox Run, and so we we were able to launch uh, on Wednesday, on April 12th, like you said, the anniversary of the start of Terry, starting his marathon of hope, and the the dear Terry message is um, really throwing it back to you know, a really personal way to to share your experience with, with Terry and how he inspired you. When when Terry was running his Marathon of Hope and after, and, and honestly, still to this day, the family and the foundation received thousands and thousands of letters from, from people across Canada and across the world telling telling us how Terry inspires them and and what what he did means to them. And um and we've we've kept all of those since 1980 we we have all of them and so we wanted to to bring that back and encourage people to to keep writing to us and telling us how terry inspires them with their dear terry message oh the t-shirt is beautiful like those messages on there are just amazing and then you got a boost because it turns out lots of people have dear terry messages including ryan reynolds yeah, yeah. So on the shirt, it's just a, a very small sampling of of some messages that Terry received, and um, yeah, Ryan Reynolds got on board this year. We're we're super excited to have his support. He um, is uh, also another iconic Canadian who's participated in Terry Fox Run since he was in grade two, like most kids in Canada do. And you know, he's been able to help us by by sharing some posts on social media. He has such a wide reach, so a great reminder to people who you know, might not have been thinking about Terry Fox lately, and but also introducing him to people that may not be familiar with Terry's story. So we're excited to have his support to, to get the message out. It is phenomenal. And I'm so glad to see this happen. So, But Kirsten, what happened when, yeah, he did turn his attention to the Terry Fox Foundation and these Dear Terry t-shirts? What happened to sales? 
Oh my goodness! Yeah, we had a uh, we uh, for the first time ever launched a presale. We we've never done that before. So typically we we don't start selling until April or May. And so with Ryan's help, we we launched a presale. We sold over uh, thirty thousand shirts, um, over a million dollars. What? And um, it's yeah yeah, and it's still going to keep going. So you can still get your shirt though if you go to terryfox.org and uh, order your shirt there. And um, the sale of that shirt will go towards cancer research. Wow. Okay. So that's amazing. So you're just going to keep selling them now, right? Because it sounds like they're probably going to get more and more popular. Yeah, I mean, it is a limited edition. So, you know, we we, we do encourage people to, to place their orders and, and do that soon. But, um, you know, the, the T-shirt is for our run in September. And every year we do have a new design for the shirt. And so this has uh, just been an amazing response to the shirt this year. And uh, yeah, so, you know, as many as we can sell, of course, goes towards cancer research, um, but you can also make a donation to the cause as well. Okay, so first off, where can people get this? Yeah, you can go to terryfox.org, and uh, from there you can navigate to our shopping cart and uh, purchase your shirt. Okay, so what does this tell us about really how powerful that message is that your uncle had? It still is so powerful, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. It's... Um, you know, this time of year, I think our family really reflects on on what Terry did and and the legacy. And honestly, it's so hard to believe that it's been 43 years since since Terry ran his marathon of hope. And I wasn't born at that time. I, I never got to meet my uncle Terry. Sadly, he he passed away just six months or sorry, six weeks before my my mom and dad were married. Um, and but so like like many kids across Canada, I learned about Terry Fox and what he did, and it's still inspiring. Um, you know, he didn't do it for himself. He did it for others. So he's such a great example of, of empathy and, and helping other people and the power that one person can change the world. So he's, he's just a, a great example of, of that. He really is. What kind of stories did you hear growing up then? Because I guess your family would have wanted you to know about him. What did they tell you about Terry? Yeah, so, you know, the, at home, he was Uncle Terry, uh, you know, just dad's brother. And, you know, the, they were very close in age growing and grew up very close friends. And so, you know, they, they played lots of sports together. They um, did odd jobs together. You know, they would rough house in the living room and, you know, all those little things that, right. that kids do growing up. And um, so that was Uncle Terry that I that I grew up uh, learning about. And, you know, I, I I think that's such a great example and that we do try to tell people that, you know, Terry was a, a normal person. He wasn't right. much different than, than you or I or any of your listeners. And, you know, he just he just worked hard and he had a dream and he wanted to help other people. And so it's really um, such a, a close example that, that that is possible. And such a phenomenal person. 43 years later, that dream sounds like it's still going strong. Like, are you sometimes surprised that you think, wow, this is still going. We're still doing this. Yeah, I, yes and no. I mean, you know, I think we're obviously we're so proud, you know, and of Terry and we're so humbled that people, you know, still believe in what he started 43 years ago. But there's still a lot of work to be done. Right. Terry's original um, mission was to raise money for cancer research. And that is still our mission today with the Terry Fox Foundation. And, you know, we we work really hard to raise funds to fund the best cancer research in Canada to, to find the, the, the best treatments to so the best results for cancer patients and hopefully one day we won't have to say goodbye to the people we love because of cancer and that's what keeps us going in terry's name well thank you so much for joining us this morning kirsten we appreciate it 
Thank you so much. And best of luck with your work this year. That's Kirsten Fox, Terry Fox's niece, talking about their campaign this year. They, of course, continuing to raise money for cancer research and awareness. Check out terryfox.org if you want to get one of these Dear Terry t-shirts. Get one. Ryan Reynolds has been promoting them. They're a limited edition uh, and they are very popular and all the money, of course, going to cancer research. So great reason. They've made almost a million dollars just from this T-shirt this year and all goes to a great cause. So terryfox.org for more. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in on what's going on with our Vancouver Whitecaps and coach of the team, Vanny Sartini, joins us this morning. Hi, coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. We're going to talk about your streak that you have going on in MLS play, right? So now correct me if I'm wrong here. You've got the team has not conceded a goal or a shot on target in the last 230 minutes of MLS play. Is that right? Fantastic. Very good. Yes, it's true. (laughs) That's a good stat to have. Yes, it's a very good stat. We, we, We last uh games we we played very well and uh you know we were in control of the game for for most of the of the run of play so that helps uh, a lot but also our uh defensive play has been really good so it made uh, really hard for the other team to to create chances right but i can tell by the tone of your voice that you obviously think there's things that you still need to do better so what should the team work on <laughs> yeah we we're always trying to to get better yeah we i think we need to continue uh, improving in the path that that we that we took in the last weeks like we were playing well we uh we are uh, i would say always the team who he's in let's say in charge of the game like having more the ball in the possession of the ball creating more creating more chances what we need to do uh better is to probably finalizing those chances and uh, uh i would say uh don't get uh, like we did actually in the last game against portland don't get uh, i would say nervous or uh, antsy if uh, things are not going well immediately because the game is uh, 90 minutes long and uh, we can score the, the 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 winner goal at the last minute so you know we uh, it's ideal that uh, you play well and you score immediately but sometimes you need time okay so you're playing austin this weekend yeah. austin fc they are winless in their last three matches so what are you going to tell the team here well you know they they are a good team actually they they didn't start very well they were a little bit uh, unlucky also because they had uh, uh, a series of injury all in the same position. So they had to put a lot of players to play in different positions because they lost a lot of central defenders. And, uh, of course, now they are, they, 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 they want to bounce, they want to bounce back. And, uh, uh, we know that it's a very pretty, uh, warm environment, uh, hosting not only because it's Texas, but also the stadium is a lot of people. And, uh, uh, I think the, the beginning of the game is going to be, really important because they will come out uh, uh, running 100% against us. So what we need to be is very organized, very, very compact uh, when we don't have the ball. And then uh, uh, let's show them immediately that uh, uh, this year is a little different for the Whitecaps. We're not just a team uh, who, let's say, is there for defending and counterattack, but it's a team that... uh, can take charge of the game, so let's show them immediately from minute one. Yeah, let's do that. We're going to be watching, yeah. Coach, so good luck. 
Thank you so much. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the fight for varsity football at Simon Fraser University continues. It's been more than a week since the program was abruptly canceled, leaving student athletes in the lurch during exam season, no less. And still no word from the university about this whole situation. Now the Football Alumni Society and current players have launched an effort to get an injunction against the shutdown. But we thought, let's get an update on everything that's happened because this fight seems to be getting bigger and bigger. So joining us now is the president of Football Canada, Jim Mullen. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Sammy. This is my old time slot. I've got a whole sports cast prepared for the morning major. I, I was going to ask you. bringing me on for this. I was going to ask you if you're having a bit of deja vu right now because I know longtime NW listeners will remember you, of course, right at this time of the morning, right? That's right. That's exactly it. The good thing about uh, uh, getting together with you here is that I don't have to get up at three in the morning to prepare myself for it. How dare you? I love getting up at three thirty in the morning. (laughs) Let's talk about football right now, though, because you have also been a part of this from the moment that you heard that this program was canceled. How big has this story become about SFU canceling the program? It's a national story. Um, the media splash that uh, we received uh, from uh, the uh, announcement of the law courts yesterday was immense. It went well beyond what I thought we could get for reach uh, at the end of the day. Uh, the unity that we have in this sport right now between the Canadian Football League, the Canadian Football League Players Association, U uh, sports, uh, the CJF, like right across the board, it's unique because our sport is notorious in being a siloed sport where everybody works in their own little groups. This has galvanized the uh, national scene for uh, football in Canada. I've never seen uh, an event that is uh, that has united folks the way this SFU football piece has, and you know I think it, it, in part it's because people feel like the sport is being attacked somewhat here, especially with no explanation or real explanation uh, from the university so far. I think, you know, you said a little over a week. Uh, My count is uh, day 11 uh, so far for me in terms of being engaged in this piece. And, uh, you know, I I, I really struggle with um, the way that this has been uh, mismanaged uh, by the university in terms of, not responding in terms of uh, the uh, the student athletes being thrown to uh, to exams in the in the middle of an announcement like this. I mean, they were collateral damage, really. I know. Uh, and that, when that's, you take a look at this, this that, is it's quite amazing. But at least they can walk this back. They got a week coming up where they can walk this back. Yeah, we'll get to that in a sec here. But that's the part that I struggle with here, Jim. Is that you? You had student athletes in the middle of exams, no notice. They dedicated their lives to the school. They wanted to build something here. They made that commitment. Has there been any any feedback at all from the school about this? I think there's been some back channel discussions, uh, but they're they're distant from what needs to be seen. I think in in public view right now. Uh, I expect uh, something in public view uh, starting at the beginning of next week in terms of how the university is going to address this and, quite frankly, correct a bad decision. Uh, at least that's what we're hoping for from the uh, from the alumni side. Uh, it, Go ahead, Simi. Yeah, have you heard that, though? So are you hopeful that something might happen here? 
I think the court action uh, should prompt something. It's been clearly demonstrated that there is a place to play for Simon Fraser football in 2023. Uh, There is a path where they can find a place in 2024. It's been demonstrated that there's been damage to the student-athletes by the timing of this decision and the nature of this decision. Uh, you know, just springing it on to the entire uh, campus community and the football community with no prior warning and no consultation is remarkable in this day and age. Uh, we're all about uh, Simon Fraser being uh, Canada's engaged university. That's what it says on their website. They have been anything but engaged, but now they have an opportunity coming up here to be engaged and correct this mistake. What kind of an impact has this had on the rest of the athletic department here, too? Because, like, to me, it's about more than football, right? Uh, it's about mm-hmm. student athletes who commit to a school, who work so hard in high school to get to this point. What, what have you heard about that aspect of it? Uh, there's a couple of angles uh, to this. First of all, uh, as it uh, pertains to the football team, the football team makes up about 25% of student athletes in the athletic department and half of those uh, athletes on the football team uh, are BIPOC and, and, and it's amazing for a university that focuses on diversity and inclusion that they would isolate the football team to be cut in, in that instance. The other thing is that it does have some discussions going around some of the other programs uh, at, at the university. I mean, they're the ones that are going to have to, Uh, step up and address the issues that they have with the athletic department, whether it was uh, issues around the the swim team, whether it's issues around the women's soccer team. I think those are uh, the stories that that those uh, those teams and those sports will have to bring forward in the coming weeks uh, to to really uh, reset the discussion around athletics at Simon Fraser. Okay, so then moving forward, how are the players doing, by the way? I mean, this must be a very stressful time for them. Well, one of the most gratifying things about being at that presser yesterday at uh, Supreme Court was seeing the response from the players. Uh, there was at least uh, 25, around 30 of them there. And, you know, uh, they, they shared uh, some of what they went through with this announcement, and they're still going through it, too, uh, through this period. There's a great deal of uncertainty in terms of what their football futures are, and, you know, uh, it's... It, it, it's really hard to witness. At the same time, you know, uh, we ended the presser. The whole group of guys, and one girl, by the way, Christy Elliott, the kicker, um, stayed together for about an hour afterwards on the steps of the court. They, they didn't want to break away. They were, they were pulled together by the discussion. And it shows you just how united they are and, and how focused they are to work with the alumni group and hopefully eventually work with the administration at Simon Fraser to get on the field in 2023. And how committed are they to staying at the school? Because I'm sure they've had other offers, right? They, at this point, I wouldn't blame them at all if they, if they just picked up and went elsewhere. Well, you know, we're talking about unity uh, across Canada. Uh, the uh, Canadian University Coaches Association, responsible for all the U sports uh, schools, the 27 schools, have put a moratorium on announcing any sort of player transfers from uh, Simon Fraser to any of their schools uh, until uh, uh, May the 3rd, which is which is fantastic. The Canadian Junior Football League has uh, done the same thing as well. But make no mistake, there are discussions 
happening between right. players and other programs right now. And you can't blame these student athletes, given where they've been uh, yeah. uh, tossed into by the administration here. One thing that was really positive, uh, this is breaking news, breaking sports news at 8.15, how about that, is that uh, the Canadian university coaches have an annual East-West Bowl where the incoming seniors get to play, and it's been usually uh, exclusive to youth sports players. They're inviting three uh, SFU players uh, to play in this. And that's an important step wow, in, in okay. professional development for them. So there are bridges uh, being built uh, between uh, groups within youth sport and uh, and the and the SFU program right now. Okay, well, good. And keep us up to date because we want to keep talking about it. But Jim, thank you very much for your time this morning. And Simi, that's your NW Sports Major at 815. <laughs> oh, I missed that. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> that is Jim Mullen, of course. Long time NW listeners recognize Jim Mullen. He is now the president of Football Canada, keeping us up to date on the Simon Fraser University varsity football uh, story.